All right, if you'll please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy. We're going to look at chapter 4 and chapter 3, 2 Timothy. At the end of the service, I'm going to ask uh, Chase and Stephen if y'all would go with me out to the front at the end of the service. People can come by and speak to you out there at the end today. You know, because uh, I wasn't here last week with COVID, I was supposed to start the sermon series and preach this message last Sunday and of course, we weren't doing a deacon ordination service, so I was going to have plenty of time, and it was going to be a doozy of a sermon. Uh, you guys would have wished you had a lunch. So what I've done is I've split it in two, right? So we're going to, I'm going to introduce this sermon series today and just touch on the first part of my sermon about the Word of God, and then we'll pick that up and we'll finish that up next week. But really, it's pretty appropriate that we're doing this today because this sermon series has such a deep connection to what we just did in ordaining, commissioning, acknowledging the very important ministry of deacons. There are two offices in a New Testament church, the pastor and the deacon. Now, the pastors follow the example of the apostles we heard in Acts chapter 6, our New Testament reading. Uh, The apostles were devoting themselves to the ministry of the Word and to prayer. They were the spiritual leaders of the church. And as pastors, we follow that same model, to pray, to study, to teach and preach God's Word, if you remember, uh, just uh, in, in chapter in verse two, it says that uh, the twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. And in verse four, they said we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, two of the primary tasks of a pastor. Deacons exist to serve alongside and under the leadership of pastors to predominantly do two things, and we see both of those here in Acts six. One is to preserve the unity of the church. The the first deacons here in Acts 6 were actually there to help heal a racial divide that was growing in the church between the Hellenistic, the Greek uh, Jewish believers, and the Hebraic Jewish believers. And so they were there to help preserve the unity of the church and also to assist in meeting the needs of the congregation, particularly here, the physical need of distributing food. And really this settles, in my mind, once and for all, this very unnecessary but age-long debate among Christians about theology and practice. Theology and praxis uh, have been two things that just kind of seem to stay in tension. Well, what is theology? Well, theology is the study of God and the things of God. It's what this sermon series is about. It's the truths we believe. And if theology is about the truths we believe, praxis is about the practices of our faith. It's the things we do because of those beliefs. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's where we put our money where our mouth is. We walk the talk and practice what we preach. It's how we take up our cross daily and follow Jesus and share the gospel with others. That's praxis. And sadly, throughout history, people kind of tend to emphasize one or the other, right? You have some people that are just so focused on believing the right thing. We've got to have all the right beliefs and check all the right boxes but they don't ever really let that translate into how they live their lives. And then you have other people that are more concerned just about, you know, preacher, don't give me all that stuff. Just tell me what I need to do and how I need to do it. Just just give me the practical things that I'm supposed to do. I'm not going to worry about that other stuff. And both of those are the wrong approach. And I think even more today we tend toward that second approach. We, We are becoming a more pragmatic culture where you do what works where the ends, you know, we kind of use them to justify our means without any regard for the underlying worldview or ideology or assumptions behind it. And I think this is extremely dangerous. I think it's short-sighted and I think it's unnecessary. And that's where Acts 6 comes in. 
The apostles, notice they didn't dismiss the concerns of these Hellenistic Jewish believers who felt overlooked. They didn't see the meeting of these widows' needs as beneath them just because they acknowledged the fact that they couldn't do it all and that they had a primary duty to be responsible to the spiritual leading of the church, to the study and preaching of, of the Word of God and to prayer. They, that didn't mean that they thought that these mercy ministries were unimportant. And that's why the apostles, led by the Spirit, created what would become the office of the deacon. They, they dedicated a group of spirit-filled and wise men to oversee this ministry. And to me, that forever settles the debate between theology and praxis. Which is more important? Neither. They're both essential. They're two sides of the same coin if we're going to follow Jesus. We need to have a solid foundation of biblical theology and live our lives as if those beliefs really do mean something. And in fact, without the proper foundation of right belief, we can't really have right action, at least not in any way that makes an eternal difference in the lives of people. <clears throat> and we need both more today than ever, the theology and the practice. Albert Moeller, he is the president of Southern Seminary, he said it is going to take an enormous amount of biblical commitment, theological clarity, and individual and congregational courage to stand against the tide of the moral and ideological revolution of our culture. Y'all, we are in a moment of moral and ideological revolution. <clears throat> it is happening. And we are consistently outside the step of our culture. And he's right. It will take theological clarity and it will take moral courage for us to stand our ground. And this isn't unique to us. Paul said something very similar 2,000 years ago. Look with me in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul speaks to the young pastor Timothy and he says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus. Just as we charged these deacons, he is, he is giving uh, Timothy this charge. Uh, he was going to judge the living and the dead and because of his appearing in his kingdom. And here's the charge. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct. Rebuke. Encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. What a chilling description of our own day, is it not? People today do not tolerate sound doctrine. And according to our own desires, we have multiplied so many teachers to itch where we scratch, to tell us what we want to hear. We have more ways today to hear more different opinions on things than any generation in history. I mean, from the television to the radio to iTunes to Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and Twitter and Facebook, we have so many ways we can accumulate and like and follow voices that we like what they have to say. It leads to what we often call an echo chamber or bias confirmation or tribalism, but it's the sad truth that our culture has chosen to reject absolute objective truth in favor of subjective opinions and beliefs. And we see individuals, we see institutions, churches, 
governments actually living in denial of reality, of actual science and philosophy and history, also they can embrace politically approved thoughts and speech. We have turned away from hearing the truth. As a society, we've turned aside the myths. And you're you're fooling yourself if you think that these kinds of beliefs and influences don't impact the way we live our lives. That that theology, even if it's bad theology, impacts our practices, our priorities, how we treat people, how we live our lives. These ideologies have real-world impacts and dire consequences, and we're already seeing them take shape. So what can we do about this? Well, consider what Paul told Timothy to do in his own pagan, morally bankrupt culture. He said, exercise self-control in everything. In other words, what we believe should influence how we live. And that's going to lead us to have to endure hardships because we will be out of step with the culture around us. But then he goes on to say, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. It's not just enough to dig in our heels and, and to be true to our convictions. He says, we've also got to share what we believe with others, why we believe it, the difference we think it makes, and invite them to join us in living that different way of life. And Paul also challenged Timothy to preach the Word. And this goes back to the apostles in Acts chapter 6. How important it was for them not to neglect the preaching of the Word of God. See, They were on the front lines of helping shape the very doctrines we're going to be talking about this year. And as a pastor, one of my primary tasks is sort of like the, the Minutemen of the American Revolution. Well, that's what Paul's words here always made me think of. I must be ready in season and out of season at any moment's notice to teach the truth, to correct our wrong thinking, to rebuke where I see sin and worldliness creep in, which always happens whenever we turn away from living our lives on the teachings of God. So I believe God is leading me in this season to teach the essential doctrines of the faith, to encourage our faithfulness, to correct errors in our thinking, and to help us understand what we believe based on the Word of God. And I know when, when you think about theology and you hear about, it, you know, David's going to be preaching a doctrine series, that might seem kind of dry and dusty. You think of like a library with a bunch of books and you think, man, this is above my pay grade. Or maybe to you it's like algebra. How am I ever going to use this in my real life? I'm still figuring that one out, by the way. I don't know algebra there. And so that's why people tend to leave doctrine to the preachers and the teachers and the real theologians. But listen, I've got a, I've got a secret for you. We're all theologians. You are a theologian. What is theology? Literally, it means words about God. So guess what? We all do theology. Theology is what you think, what you believe, what you say about God, how you live for God. That's theology. When you say a prayer, when you sing a hymn, when you speak up in a Bible study, when you write down a thought that's prompted by the pastor's sermon, when you answer a question your kid asks about God, guess what you're doing? You're doing theology. You're being a theologian. R.C. Sproul, who is one of our famous fellow theologians, said this. He said, no Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian has a theology. The issue then is not, do we want to have a theology? That's a given. The real issue is, do we have a sound theology? Do we embrace true or false doctrine? And so my goal in the coming months is to help each of us determine if we are embracing teaching and living by sound doctrine. And to help us do this, I'm going to be using the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message. 
That is the current statement of faith for the Southern Baptist Convention, for the Georgia Baptist Mission Board, and we are part of both of those groups. Every IMB missionary that we pray for in the week of prayer and we support through our Lottie Moon Christmas offering, they all endorse, support, and, and lead their ministries in accord with the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message. Every Southern Baptist seminary and every Georgia Baptist college that we support, that we maybe want to send our kids to, that we trust to train our pastors and leaders like myself and Ben and Matt, they all are adherents to the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, as is the authors of the Lifeway Sunday School curriculum we use. So this is already very much a part of the life of our church. And while it is a man-made document, and obviously, therefore, it's not Scripture, it's not inspired, it's not infallible, I believe it is the most accurate and reflective statement we have today of our Baptist distinctives, beliefs, and values. And so I'm going to be using it to sort of guide me through these series of messages. Now, statements of faith, you might also know them as confessions of faith. They've been around for generations. The churches and Christians have been using these throughout church history as every generation wrestles with what the Bible means for them and their culture and their point in time. Uh, Adrian Rogers, who was chairman of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 Study Committee and longtime pastor at Bellevue Baptist in Memphis, he explained how such statements are intended to clarify and publish the most basic beliefs that frame our faith, our witness, and our movement. So it's a tool. The Baptist Faith and Message is a tool. It's a useful tool that we can use to help us. And, and these tools have been around throughout church history. The earliest theological battles that led to the formation of confessions of faith, like the Apostles' Creed, were studied on Wednesday nights, were over the question of who is Jesus. That was kind of the first big question. Who is Jesus? And the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. settled that question, affirming for us, based on the Bible, the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. He's 100% man. He's 100% God. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. A thousand years later, the question became, what is the church? The Roman Catholic Church was, was the largest church in the world at the time. It said that they were the only true and legitimate church. But the 16th century Protestant Reformation renewed our understanding of what constitutes the church. How does somebody become a part of the church? It's when an individual places their faith in the grace of God and are saved. They become a part of the body of Christ. So over the course of history, theological debate shifted from the Son of God to the family of God and most recently, the Word of God. Really, the big theological question of the last century, really kind of the 19th and the 20th centuries, was, what is the Bible? And the Baptist faith, the message, came about in part to try to answer that question. What is the nature and authority of the Bible? Is it reliable? How can we know that it is the Word of God? And these are fundamental questions because doctrine, theology... Simply put, is a systematic way of understanding what the Bible teaches. It's all based on the Bible. Doctrinal studies give us a, a panoramic view of God's Word and gives us a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches on any given subject. Southwestern Seminary President Adam Greenway explains that a high view of Scripture is the first non-negotiable pillar of sound doctrine because the Bible is the source for all of our theology. Everything we believe about God has to come from somewhere. There has to be some source of authority for that. And so like the Baptist Faith and Message does, I'm beginning the series by looking at what the Bible is. What is the Bible? God's revelation. And in your order of worship and on the screen is going to be the first article 
of the Baptist Faith Message. I just want to read that for us. And I also have some resources up here on the platform and in the back on the Baptist Faith Message. If you want to pick those up, uh, you can help yourself to that as well and take those home. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of Himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Now, it's that third sentence that I'm going to kind of uh, build my, my sermon this week and next week on. That, that the Bible has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any, any mixture of error for its matter. And today we're going to look at just that first one, God for its author. God is the author of the Bible. It is his revelation. Now, that word revelation means to reveal something that's hidden. It's the word picture of pulling back a curtain. That's what revelation means. And there are two kinds of revelation, general revelation and special revelation. Now, general revelation is described by Paul very well in Romans 1, 19 and 20. Paul says, Since what can be known about God is evident among them, talking about non-believers, because God has shown it to them. God has shown everyone something of himself. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Paul is saying that God has revealed himself in a general way to everyone, through creation, through our conscience, through, uh, through our bodies, through just the way society is set up to work. There are ways in which God reveals himself to everyone. But that kind of general revelation alone is insufficient to explain to us all that God wants us to know about himself and his plan for the world. And so God has also revealed himself in special, particular, unique ways. He reveals himself, his character, his purpose through his actions and history, through his words, and ultimately through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate and final revelation of God. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 1, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the ultimate greatest revelation of God. Jesus is God in human flesh. John chapter 1 talks about Jesus as the Word of God. And the Word of God was made flesh incarnate. In a very real, real way, the Bible is the Word of God written down for us. Scripture is at its core. God's written revelation of Himself to us. It's the only source that we have for certain knowledge about God. I mean, think about it. Without the Bible, each of us would be left up to our own devices, to our own whims, to our own opinions of who God is and what God is like and what God expects of us and how do I relate to God. And it would just be a, a chaotic mishmash of, of views and philosophies. And, and when we see this happen in the world, it never leads to good results. It's always devastating. So God gave us His sure and certain word. Now, God used over 40 human writers in three different languages over a span of 1,500 some odd years, but it tells one cohesive story that points us to Jesus. 
And that's because while God used human beings to write the Bible, God is the source of the very words and the truth of Scripture. We can say in a very real and true way that God is the author of the Bible. In fact, He breathed it out. He inspired it. That's the first thing I want us to see about God being the author, that the Bible is divinely inspired. Look with me at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's go up to the next chapter, chapter 3. Really the next two verses before what we read a minute ago. Verse 16, Paul says, All Scripture is inspired by God. Now I'm reading from the Christian standard. If you have an NIV, it says God breathed. It actually defines the word inspiration for us. Think about the word inspiration. It sounds like the word respiration, doesn't it? They have the same root. In fact, sometimes we say when someone dies, they have expired, right? They've let out their breath. So inspired is to have breath put into you. What Paul is saying is all Scripture is inspired by God. God has breathed His life, His truth, His power into these words. And it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And Paul doesn't just say that some Scripture is breathed out by God. He says all Scripture is breathed out by God. Inspiration is the Holy Spirit's activity of directing and guiding the biblical writers so that what they wrote down is what God wanted recorded for us. It is God's Word. And therefore, it carries the same authority and effect as if God Himself were speaking to us directly. Now, if this is true, if the Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God, if it truly conveys to us God's voice, if it reveals God's mind and purposes to us, shouldn't this book inform every decision we make? Shouldn't it guide every aspect of our lives? Should it not inform our thoughts and permeate our speech if that is true? Should it? Yes. Bible scholar Ben Witherington wrote this, The Holy Spirit guided and directed and motivated human authors so that what they said was not their own creation or imaginings, but the very Word of God Himself, the truth. Thus the Spirit is the motivator or originator, the guide or guard of the words of the human author so that what He says can be declared to be spoken from God. Now, when we talk about inspiration, there's a wide spectrum of views on what that means. Some people would say that the Bible is inspiring like a great work of art or literature or a symphony is inspiring, but it itself is not inspired. On the other extreme, some people want to treat the biblical authors as little more than human typewriters that God just kind of whispered into their ear and they just typed it down like, like they were dictating I reject both of those views. That's not what this means. Some people believe the Bible is not the Word of God, but it just contains the Word of God. They would say that, that there are kernels of God's truth in the husks of human perspectives, and our job is to separate the wheat from the chaff. They say the writers may have been inspired, but not necessarily their words. I reject that as well. Because the major problem with any of these kinds of views is if we can't have confidence in all of the Bible, how can we have confidence in any of the Bible? How can I believe that John 3.16 is true if I don't believe that 2 Timothy 3.1 is true? Who becomes the arbiter that determines what is the kernel of God's truth and what are the husks of human thought? We might as well not have a Bible at all. 
The position that I take, and it's the one the Baptist Faith and Message holds, is called the verbal plenary view. And that simply means every word is inspired. Think about the word plenary. It means full. It means all-encompassing. Verbal, meaning that it, it, it goes down to the very words of the Bible themselves. And so this view holds that every word the biblical writers wrote down was inspired by God. God guided the writing process such that every word is exactly as God wanted us to have it. And I believe this is the view that is best backed by the Bible itself, as we read in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God, period. And it's useful, it's profitable for us. Paul and Jesus, they even make some pretty high theological arguments based on a particular word choice in the Old Testament, even down to the grammar that an Old Testament author used. So they believe that even the grammar, the tense of a verb was inspired by God. In fact, Jesus even said in Matthew 5.18, He said, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Even the dotting of an eye and the crossing of a T, Jesus took seriously. Now this view of inspiration doesn't override the human element. I believe the writers still spoke from their heart. They, they had their own styles and word choices. They spoke in personal ways. I mean, you remember if you were with us as we studied through Mark's gospel. Mark had a very definitive way of writing about Jesus. He had certain words and phrases he liked to use. You can tell if you're reading Mark or Matthew or John. Their personalities, their writing styles, their life experiences do come through. So we acknowledge that inspiration is a mystery. I would say it's as mysterious as incarnation. Think about the incarnation. Jesus is 100% God, but 100% man. In a very real way, the Bible is 100% written by human beings and 100% the Word of God. It's a miracle. It's a mystery to us. How God was able to guide each writer without overriding His free will and His personality. God somehow supernaturally merged human style with divine authority. And so that means that every verse of the Bible, if that is true, every verse of the Bible speaks with equal authority and gives us complete confidence in Scripture. Now you may say, David, I believe that. You may say, David, that's fine. When Moses, when David, when, when, when you know, Solomon, when Matthew or Peter or Paul, when they sat down and wrote the Bible, what they wrote was inspired by God, but that was 2,000, 3,000 years ago. That was in a different part of the world, in a different language. How can I know today that the Bible in my hands in English is still the fully inspired Word of God? That is a great question. And that speaks to the second part of God being the author of the Bible. Not only is it divinely inspired by God, but it's faithfully preserved by God. If God was to go to all that work to use His Spirit to inspire these men over 1,500 years to write down His inspired, true, infallible Word, you think He wouldn't preserve it for us just like He preserves our salvation? When you put your faith and trust in Jesus to be saved, you trust that He's going to preserve you through your life. We trust that God has preserved His Word throughout history. Look with me at 2 Timothy 3.14. Go up to verse 14. Paul says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. And I think about the, the people that I have respected most in my life, my parents and grandparents, pastors and Sunday school teachers and youth workers, 
They modeled for me a love for the Word of God, a trust in the Word of God. They modeled for me a hunger and a desire to study and to live by the Word of God. I trust those people. But even beyond our parents and pastors and Sunday school teachers, think about the people God has used throughout the past 2,000 years to faithfully copy and preserve the sacred text, to translate it accurately into other languages. They even suffered persecution and death to defend God's Word and get it into the hands of common people. I encourage you to read up on your church history. Read up about how serious these scribes took their work. If they made one mistake, they realized they made a mistake, they threw the whole page away and started over. They didn't have, you know, spell check. They didn't have, you know, word. And, and they labored. They labored. They took this seriously. They believed that this was a divine calling of God for them to preserve the Word of God. Read about men like William Tyndall and, and, and uh, John Wycliffe who literally gave their lives. They weren't persecuted and martyred because they believed in Jesus, but because they believed that everyday people like you and me should be able to read the Bible in our language. These men gave their lives so that we could sit here today and have God's Word in our Bible or on our iPad or on our iPhone. There are more ancient manuscripts and textual fragments of the Bible than all other ancient pieces of work combined. It's not even close. And many of those, from the Dead Sea Scrolls to these different textual fragments of the epistles and and the Gospels, some of them are even written within a generation of the original writing of it. And what we have learned throughout time in accumulating these, and these are being discovered all the time, if you compare them to what we have in our English Bible, they are amazingly accurate. There's not a single doctrine or truth that has changed in the Bible anywhere based on some textual fragment that's been discovered. That gives us great confidence that the English Bibles we have today are very accurate and trustworthy. And that doesn't even include the dozens of major archaeological finds. And I I follow these. I like to read these up. I know Ben does too. Every year there are dozens of major archaeological finds in Israel and Egypt and places like that that just further confirm the historicity and the accuracy of the Bible. But even with all of that, with all of that faithful preservation by the hand of God, we have to remember one thing when we approach the Bible. And that's that while God certainly speaks to us through it today, in a way, when you read the Bible, you're listening in on a conversation. It's like you're intercepting somebody else's mail. And you're reading a conversation that God had with the Jewish people and the early church thousands of years ago. So really, Bible study is always a cross-cultural engagement. We're reaching across cultural divides every time we read the Bible. Through these 66 books, God communicated with those people back then, but He faithfully preserved it in such a way that it would be available for all people for all time. In fact, Jesus Himself even promised us that He would faithfully preserve His Word for us and every generation to come. In Matthew 24, 35, He said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will never pass away. Now, in my experience, when people want to discount the inspiration and authority of the Bible, it isn't, I mean, it can be, but it it isn't always just fueled by honest intellectual disagreements. It's not often fueled by, you know, uh, problems with the Bible's historicity or its consistency. Rather, in my experience, it's because people are uncomfortable with the implications of what the Bible says. They don't like what the Bible teaches about a certain thing. 
And in that way, people today are very much like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who rejected Jesus. They didn't give Jesus a full, honest hearing because they didn't want to hear. They didn't want to be made uncomfortable. They didn't want their religious viewpoints and worldviews challenged. So they disregarded him. People today do the same thing with the Bible. But if the Bible is the fully inspired Word of God, then we must submit ourselves to it and allow it to rebuke us and to correct us. And I don't know about you, but those are two things I don't like people doing to me. That's what we must allow the Word of God to do in our lives. I want to have one final quote. Somebody I don't often quote in a sermon. That's Mark Twain. Mark Twain famously said, It's not the things which I do not understand in the Bible which trouble me. It's the things I do understand. He's right. Those are the things that step on our toes and make us squirm and uncomfortable. Jesus said it this way. He said, those who are in the darkness love the darkness and hate the light because their deeds are evil. They don't want the light to expose their evil deeds. So maybe this morning, even right now, you're feeling the conviction of God. I want to encourage you, don't grieve the Holy Spirit this morning. If what the Bible teaches is true, if these doctrines we're going to be studying together are real and they do matter, then they demand something of us. We can't just read this and check it off and say, yep, that's right, and go about our lives as if nothing has changed. These things demand a response from each of us. Remember when Jesus, you know, uh, Peter, when he, he made the very accurate, true theological statement, the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, hey, this wasn't revealed to you by men. This was revealed to you by God. But then what did Jesus follow that up with? If you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. That truth that Peter acknowledged demanded something from him. A sacrifice, a commitment, a surrender. And we can either do that, or we can turn our backs on the only one who has the words of eternal life. That's our choice. What is your choice today? What will you do today? Will you follow God's leading this morning and allow what you believe to make a real difference in how you live your life? Maybe for you that means surrendering your life to Christ today. Maybe today you realize you need Jesus for salvation, that you've been building your life on the shifting sands of worldly opinions and beliefs, and you want to build your life on the solid, unchanging rock of God's Word. Maybe today you want to come in faith to Jesus Christ and say, God, forgive me of my sins. Come live within me and help me to build my life on you. I invite you to come in just a moment and do that. Maybe this morning God's Spirit is speaking to you, saying that God wants you to unite with this church family. A church family that loves God and loves people and wants to reach this world for Jesus and help people to live their life based on the unchanging, precious truths of God's Word that we sang about so beautifully earlier today. I invite you to come maybe as a moving of your letter from another church or maybe coming in baptism because you've never done that before. Or maybe this morning what God is speaking to your heart is that you need to renew your commitment to His Word. Maybe your prayer this morning is, God, give me a fresh hunger and thirst for your Word. Give me a desire for your Word. Help me to prioritize spending time in your Word so that I can read it and believe it and understand it and live it and share it with other people. This altar is open. Whatever God has spoken to you today, I pray that you would be obedient to Him. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we are so thankful that you have given us your enduring, inspired word that we can trust, that we can build our lives upon.
can be that harbor in the storms of life for us. It can be that solid foundation that will not give away when the world seems to be just going crazy around us. God, I'm thankful for the men and the women who have devoted their lives throughout history to preserve and to preach and to teach and to spread that word into the hands of people all around the world. The men and women today that faithfully and and, and sacrificially are translating Scripture into new languages and reaching new people around the world with your word. It is just as true in your word in their languages as it is in English or as it was in Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. And we praise you for that. And God, I pray you would give us all a fresh hunger and thirst, a fresh burden and desire to know your word, to be students of your word, to live and share your word. And God, if there's anyone here today that does need to come and put their faith and trust in your grace for the first time, I pray they would come, Lord. Whatever you're speaking to our hearts, may we step out in obedience and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.